Hey everyone, Michael Kitz is here. As you know, the Nerds Eye View blog and podcasts are all about adding value to the advisor community and making financial advisors better and more successful. To ensure we're staying on the right track and hopefully bring you even more content you'll enjoy, we've created a short survey so that we can hear from you, our readers and listeners. So please go to the link kitsis.com slash FAS for financial advisor success, kitsis.com slash FAS to share your feedback in our annual Nerds Eye View reader and listener survey. You can also find a link to our survey and the resources featured in this episode at kitsis.com slash 296. Thanks in advance for sharing your feedback and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 296th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ed Combs. Ed is the founder of Healthy Love and Money, a financial therapy practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, that helps couples and families uncover and understand the roots of their own underlying financial conflicts. What's unique about Ed, though, is how as a former financial advisor turned financial therapist, he utilizes couples therapy techniques to help his clients dig deeper into the issues in their lives that may be preventing them from implementing their financial planning recommendations and helps them get unblocked to be able to achieve their financial goals. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Ed learned from his early years as a financial advisor that the reason a lot of clients aren't achieving their goals isn't a logical problem, but a psychological problem. How Ed developed his expertise into the psychological reasons of why clients may have trouble completing their goals and what it takes to connect on a deeper level so they can get past those stalling points. And where the boundaries are between going deeper with clients as a financial advisor and when we may uncover a mental health issue that still requires a referral out to a mental health professional. We also talk about how, while trying to educate himself on his own personal financial responsibility after receiving a small inheritance and seeing the lifestyle of his own financial advisor as a young adult, Ed was inspired to leave his original career as a firefighter and instead pursue a career in the financial services industry. Why Ed decided to go further in his career and become a financial therapist after seeing firsthand that even though he had the knowledge to make financial recommendations to his clients, there was something deeper that was keeping them from completing their goals. And why Ed ultimately decided to pursue a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy to learn the therapy techniques that got him comfortable delving deeper into the more emotional issues that arise when talking to clients about their relationship with money. And be certain to listen to the end where Ed shares his own challenges in launching a financial therapy business from the imposter syndrome of insecurity about being a financial professional to the marketing challenges that he eventually saw by cutting back on networking and just hiring someone with expertise in website SEO. Why Ed has decided to turn his financial therapy expertise with clients into a group training for advisory firms to learn how to apply psychology techniques with their own clients to develop those more open and honest relationships as there's always a more complicated story under the surface than the one the client is telling. And the philosophy that Ed embraces of not focusing on the things you didn't know throughout stages of life, it's a normal part of growth, but rather reflecting on how far one's come in their journey and all the collective wisdom that we've been able to gain with us up to this point in time. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ed Combs. 
Welcome, Ed Combs, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate you joining us today and, and and looking forward to the discussion around what to me is this this increasingly fascinating sort of overlap and blend of, I guess, as I would think about like the world of financial advice and the world of financial psychology, which to me are starting to meet at this intersection of of financial therapy. And you know, I they I guess in part this is a little bit of maybe my own bias. Like I, you know, I was a psychology major originally as an undergrad. So I've I've always and not a finance major. So I've always brought a little bit more of the psychology lens than the economics lens to a lot of what we do as advisors. And it really is a striking difference to me. It's just like the economists look at things very differently than the financial advisors do, right? Like the the behavioral finance realm from the econ end is essentially like here's a bunch of things that human beings do that fail to act in the completely you know idealized rational way that homo economicus is supposed to work in in the econ world <laughs> oh, right. and i look at this with a psychology lens i'm like no that's pretty much like normal human because if you actually tried to be like the 100% perfectly rational being that economics predicts you would be all day every day like that sounds exhausting and not really pleasant and and so as we start shifting this lens from financial advisor to financial psychology, it just we start ending out with different tools and a different approach. And I know you have like you have lived this ver- journey very directly because literally like started your career as a financial advisor, now living in the world of financial therapists. And I know as, as I think of it, like have crossed the divide, but maybe it's not really such a divide because they're blending together. But I'm, I'm just looking forward to talking about these these intersections of financial advisor and and financial psychology and how that comes together in practice. Yeah, well, you know, and I think there's an an added bubble that I would even add from the financial therapy lens, at least for me as a as a mental health professional is what is mental health, right? And so financial psychology is trying to look at well, how do humans interact with money and what do they do? What are the different emotions, thoughts, behaviors, relationship dynamics that they get into specifically related to money? But then we have this whole other part of being human, which is mental health. And mental health ultimately is addressing what are people's different thoughts, feelings, behaviors, relationship dynamics, and expectations. And so that's where things really start to get interesting is sometimes in financial psychology, even we make a base assumption that people have a certain level of mental health or mental functioning, which is not always true. And then, and then we see it as they show up in our office as financial advisors. It's like, oh, there, like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on here, right? I, I, I do feel like for us as advisors, like you, you, you get a feel pretty quickly for clients that, like, where there's some other mental health issues going on at the same time. Although perhaps that even over overstates the matter because I I think there's that very much lives on a spectrum on a on a gradient and you know some level of our mental health I think overlays almost everything that that happens with money right like money's one of the leading causes of divorce it's very you know money issues are very tied to depression like there's a whole bunch of overlaps between mental health challenges and and money challenges and 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 vice versa. Well, that's right. And that's what I really, part of the message that I like to try to share with advisors and with my clients even is want to try to move from simple causal relationships to more complex and dynamic understandings because complex allows us to say, well, there's multiple pieces at play here. And dynamic means that it can be bi-directional 
or circular. And so it's a complex system that we're really interacting with. And I think, you know, for advisors, especially, it's like, well, how does the stock market work? Oh, how much time you got? Right. And, and we try to make a really complex system boiled down into something installed and understandable for our clients. And I think in the same way, that's true for kind of financial psychology and mental health is we're really talking about pretty complex systems. And the deeper you go into it, the more complexity you recognize. And that can feel overwhelming for some folks. And I think that that's kind of, you know, as as the advisory community is awakening to like, man, we really need to pay more attention to the psychology stuff. It's also realizing like, oh man, there's a lot more here than I realized. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel like that's the challenge for a lot of us on, on, the, on the advisor end that there's this phenomenon I see for a lot of advisors that you know, try to start going further down this realm, right? It usually starts with a just, you know, there's more to money than just money. Like there's more than money than just the finances. It often comes from, we start talking to clients more deeply about values and purpose and aligning money to values. You know, there's there's training systems out there around areas like you know programs like Money Quotient and and George Kinder's uh, life planning program that that help guide us down this road and it leads to some pretty powerful conversations and really interesting like breakthroughs sometimes for clients and some really deep relationships. But sometimes like some other stuff. <laughs> starts coming out in the process of those conversations and and I know a number of advisors that like started to try to take client conversations that direction and then got like a little bit uncomfortable with what started coming out from that I mean at least like if my client's freaking out about market declines like okay been down the you know like oh, right. done this rodeo before got right. some tools or things I figured out got a couple of go-tos about how I talk my clients through this but you know I start having conversations about value and what's really important to you. And then like, well, you say family is really important. And then we sort of reflect, well, you know, your money isn't really aligned with your family because you're spending on all their stuff. And then they start crying and they're like, whoa, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I wasn't ready for that. Like, okay. okay. Yeah, it is hard. You know, my wife and I are sitting and talking the other night over dinner and talking about sitting with people in distress. And, and so my wife is a dentist. Right. And she was saying, you know, when I first started practicing dentistry, like I didn't really pay attention to people, how much dental anxiety people had. And I would just kind of blow through it. Right. I would just be like, oh, it's going to be all right. And we're going to do this. And it, how much I've influenced her and she's influenced me, who knows. But, you know, becoming a therapist, I talk with her a little about what it means to sit with people while they're in distress, how to, how I try not to become overwhelmed by their emotional distress. And I think that that's really part of, what I appreciate in reflection in training to be a therapist is that's really one of the first skills that we start learning is how to be present for people during emotional distress. And so I think that that's part of that gap in some of the training is realizing when we start to talk about values and goals and then exposing where there's misattunement or misalignment, it's highly likely that there's going to be some sadness, maybe even some anger or some shame that shows up around that. And it does raise an important question about, well, what do we do with that now? So what do we do with that now? <laughs> I'm, I'm really just in the personal advice realm at this point, but like, what, what, what do we do with that now? Because I, I mean, I'm reflecting back even perhaps especially like early days as an advisor. And I suppose like, I, I feel like my advisor journey was 
perhaps similar to your wife's journey through through dentistry, like, yeah, for the first couple of years, like I was just so proud of the depth of the financial planning analysis I did and like how cool the the like the software analysis thing was that I was bringing out and showing to the client. Like I was so focused on delivering my plan and doing my thing and showing all the cool stuff that I found about their planning opportunities and strategies and all the things that we could pre- present that like were going to be great for them and their their financial life. And like, yeah, my head really was in the space of, well, how much like financial and money anxiety do they actually have that they're even able to take all this in and figure out what to do with it? I mean, I, I think it was probably literally like five to seven years into my career before I, I guess like the the technical stuff was so like I could do so subconsciously without needing to think about it that I could be present enough in the conversation with the client to like look around and go like, oh, like they, you know, she's looking upset. His arms are like crossed in not good way. Like there's some really bad body language going on right now. <laughs> right. I think there's something else going on here. And then I had no idea what to do with it when the emotional distress started cropping up. So, so like what, what am I? supposed to be doing in those moments as an advisor where you know I was trying to go deeper and ask more questions and like I unearthed something yeah no and it's a really powerful question and I think you know we're we're trying to explore and start to define when does financial planning become financial therapy right so is there a, a perfect black and white line no what I've grown into is like therapeutically I want to go deeper I want to open that up and move them into whatever that emotion is more fully so that they can get to the other side of it. But the reality is, as a financial advisor, that's probably not your end goal is to help them process their emotions like a therapist thinks about it. But that doesn't mean that we want to turn a blind eye to it either. And so part of it is being able to just sit in the presence and let it let them be there, sitting with emotional warmth, like just kind of accepting them for who they are, no judgment, like not kind of pulling back out of fear, either internally or externally. And it's also not rushing in to fix it and make it better. One of the things I've learned in working with my clients is that one of the worst things I can do for them is try to get them out of that emotion as fast as possible. They really appreciate that I can just be there. Sometimes it means sitting in silence for a few moments, maybe a minute. And they all have their own internal process, start to realize like, oh, Ed's okay with the fact that I just experienced sadness. And and what this really means in a broader mental health context is part of the reason why we experience depression and anxiety, part of the understanding at least, is because of emotional suppression or emotional overwhelm. And so part of mental health and, and emotional health is the ability to actually experience your emotion fully. And then that next step is really for another human to see it and be with you through it. And realize like, oh, I made it. I'm okay. That didn't kill me, right? Before I became an advisor, I was a firefighter. And I don't know when I fully learned to turn turn off my sadness, but I certainly would not cry after any of the firefighting calls that were difficult. And honestly, it wasn't really until I started training to be a therapist and I was sitting in therapy, training, supervision, talking about... And I, I have no idea what I was talking about, but my supervisor is just like, what's what are those tears about uh, huh what and it totally startled me i was like oh oh i actually have sadness and so you know i think when we're thinking about our clients on a spectrum our clients have very different relationships with with their emotional world 
And some clients are very, very comfortable with their emotional world and the different emotions that come up and what they mean to them. And some clients are terrified of their emotional world, or they're really familiar with their anger, but not their sadness or not their shame or joy or pleasure. I mean, I often am also working on the on the other side of the more positively experienced emotions and clients struggle to experience positive emotions sometimes. And I mean, that's like on the planning side, like we're trying to help people enjoy their lives. So help me understand a little bit further. Just like, what do I, what do I do? It doesn't have to just be about me, but I'm kind of feeling like a personal, personal therapy moment here for our client counseling moment. But like, just what should I be doing? And I'm thinking in particular, just your comments earlier of like, look, I am wearing a financial advisor hat. I'm not wearing a financial therapy hat. This is not going to be the first of our weekly sessions for however many weeks or months is like we go through the emotional baggage that I may have unearthed by asking you some of these questions about your your family and money and how these are aligning. But like you're in my office, you know, one spouse is on the verge of tears and the other one is looking really angry and all wrapped up. I'm like, okay, like, okay, I've just walked into something. Like what should I be doing or trying to do? Like so How, I think in what that should I be pulling out. Yeah, in that in that moment, you're out of financial planner hat and into relational. I'll, I'll call it relational caretaker. I mean, you're you're going to serve in another way as the emotional regulator. You're going to help them come back through and get settled again. And it's not that you're going to resolve whatever it is that's beneath it. That that's the kind of the the, the mindset. Okay, so I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to fix this, but I am trying to get us back to level set with I think the caveat that you'd said earlier, like, you know, my my first gut on level setting is like, okay, then I'm just gonna move you through this as quickly as possible. Like, okay, let's move on from this moment. But I'm like, but but we're not doing that. We are supposed to hang out in this moment. Yeah, right. So you're not gonna switch it from like, okay, so now we're gonna talk about life insurance. No, we don't wanna do that. But what we wanna do if if that's let's just use that that scenario, the wife's starting to, to go down into tears, the husband's looking angry, right? You're sitting there with them and you kind of maybe even internally just take a deep breath in, get yourself settled and realize you're going to be okay no matter what happens. This is their conflict, not yours. Good, so that's, good that, reminder. Good reminder. Like <laughs> the, their drama is not a reflection on you. It is not. No, we only are exposing the drama that's already there. I'm assuming we are not creating drama for them. We're we're just exposing things that are already there. And and that it sounds really simple as you and I are sitting here having this wonderful podcast interview, right? But psychologically, we're wired to start to blend with other people that are in the same space as us. And because you feel their their emotional distress signals in your brain, emotional distress in the environment, your body starts to say, Oh, there's something to do here. I'm alert. I'm, and that's where we we have to try to be mindful or aware, like and that's why I said take a deep breath because that will get you to calm back down. And then the approach with the couple becomes more about being present, non-judgmentally, just naming sounds. Wow, Miss Smith, it looks like you're feeling really sad about this. And Mr. Smith, it looks like that maybe there's some anger there for you. And notice in the language there, I I'm in my approach, especially, and I think many therapists are like this, is there's always a bit of tentativeness. Right, we're not saying, "Wow, you're really sad, Miss Smith," and "Wow, Mr. Smith, you're really angry." We're offering an observation about their their emotional state, and they get to either acknowledge and 
and say, yes, that is true or no. And then you just kind of roll with whatever their response is. But what that does is when you start to name people's emotions while they're in the emotional distress, is it validates the reality that that's true for them. So we're not trying to make Ms. Smith feel happy when she's feeling sad or Mr. Smith feel calm when he's feeling angry. So we're not saying, calm down, Mr. Smith. Oh, it's going to be okay, Ms. Smith. That's called emotional invalidation. So we're just mirroring the emotion as accurately as we can read it. And then from an advisor perspective, the next step, if you will, from a process standpoint, because I know planners love processes and steps, is... We all say we don't. Like, I hate I hate scripts because it sounds so fake. Now, please give me a script. <laughs> now, please, for the love of God, give me a script. <laughs> now, please tell me exactly what to say. And, and to be quite honest, new therapists, myself included, wanted, wanted scripts, wanted like procedures. You know, look, I was trained as an advisor before I was trained as a therapist. I wanted to have a meeting agenda to, and to run the meeting through yeah. step by step. And uh, for those listeners that have I heard have of, like a seven step process to solve your all of your <laughs> right. all of your your mental health issues, it's gonna be glorious. <laughs> right, we're gonna get it done in four sessions, and it's gonna be fantastic. But I think, and that's from the view of the therapy world, most therapists work in a much less directive and structured path than financial planners. Right, like it's gonna like we're gonna deal with whatever's present today. And then we'll make a decision as we go through the session. And it's all game time, just playing it. And then in the next session, the same thing. Wash, rinse, and repeat. I mean, there's some bigger understanding in our mind about like, here's the bigger journey or arc that we're couples typically go through or individuals go through. But session to session, there can be a lot of variability. Whereas most advisors, right? Like meeting one, this is what I'm trying to do. Meeting two, and my, you know, I was listening to a few of your podcasts um, interviews before this, and there's always a cl- pretty clear onboarding structure and process and number of meetings. And maybe there's a little flexibility for an extra meeting or two, but by and large, it's like, we're going to do five onboarding sessions and this is where we'll be. And it's, it doesn't work that way in therapy land for the most part. So, and that's okay. We just let those be differences. But as we're thinking about working with this couple, I think the next thing that can be very validating is asking the Smiths, would you like to talk about what's coming up for you or would you like to move and talk about something else, right? And then you're putting them in the the driver's seat about whether that's something they want to talk more about or if they you know, would rather not. Now, what becomes really interesting is you also now have an opportunity to, to name and say, wow, something really big has come up for you here. You know, my role as your planner is to help you keep moving forward on these important topics. I wonder, you know, if if there is something more here for you, would you be open to working with a counselor or a therapist to to talk about that? Right. So those are those transition points that I'm starting to help planners identify and bring into the conversation. And it's easy for me to say and terrifying for advisors to think about doing. I'm struck by just that that step. So sort of number one, like, let's just name what's going on and validate. Like, Miss Smith, it looks like you're feeling sad. And and Miss Smith, it looks like there's some anger here. Right. They're like, I'm not following that with anything yet. Like, that's just... uh, Yeah, just pause. Say it. Let it float. They'll they'll respond or acknowledge. Yeah. So then I like asking, opening the door, like, would you like to talk about what's coming up for you? Or would you like to talk about something else? Right. And so, well, I know what to do if they talk about something else, then we go to something else. But if they, then we're back on the financial plan again. All right. But 
you know, if if they walk through that door here, you know, we'd like to talk about what's coming up. So, like, where am I going with this now? I mean, just like how 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 deep am I going, or should I be trying to go, or like what outcome am I realistically trying to get to in this meeting? Because I'm not their ongoing family counselor, and I don't intend to be their marriage therapist. But but here we are. Yeah, but here we are, and we're we've got their stuck point, and so. I think for most advisors, right, the question is, is this something that a handful of really well-placed or asked open-ended questions may help the couple get to clarity and understanding about their differences? Or is this some, some much longer standing and deeper issue for them? And so what's a topic that, let's just make up a topic to make this even more tangible for folks. Why is Ms. Smith crying? Why is Mr. Smith getting angry? So you know, there's there's a there's an estranged child that you know they had a falling out with, and he's been out of the picture for more than ten years now. So he he's angry because he had the falling out, and she's very upset because he's gone. Okay, great. And so I love right, that. that. I feel like that's a that's a that, that to me like those are just the these are the kinds of family dramas that end out cropping up usually somewhere around the point where we're trying to talk about estate planning with the clients and 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 what's going on with money and family and like oh out it out it comes yes that's no and you're exactly right and I've been having a lot a lot of conversations recently with estate planning attorneys and this is exactly what's coming up is what do I do when I don't have a relationship with one of my adult children right so okay so let's let's play this out a little bit more and you know I think kudos if you've even been able to get that information from them, right? So this kind of almost now, if we're playing this out in a little richer way, is in that onboarding process or in just the process of getting to know your clients, you've asked them about who are the family members in their life and who's actively involved in the family life and who's maybe on the outside, right? So in family therapy world, in for me, every first session with clients, we're spending the whole hour... I'm asking questions about who are the people in your life. I don't even talk about the conflict unless they absolutely feel like they need to. Because I want to know who are all the people in their life? What's the story of their life? Because that's going to start to set the context for what, why they're having the fights that they're having. right? And so the context of Mr. Smith and Ms. Smith getting angry and sad, respectively, is they have an estranged son. Well, that's understandable that that would evoke some strong emotions, right? And so you're in the planning office, you've you've known this about it, and now it's coming up again because you're trying to help them finalize their estate plan documents about how money will be transferred or not transferred. And I think, you know, my, my sense as a family therapist is they probably need to be in family therapy. Now, okay, maybe they won't they won't come. And so as a planner, you you're sitting there, you got the anger, you got the sadness. You might be able to, to play it a little bit along the lines of acknowledging and validating softly. Like, Mr. Smith, I imagine you felt angry about this for quite a long time. Tell me a little bit more about that, right? And and this is where that the spirit of therapy at least really starts to come through is we're just curious about the story. And there's something really powerful about having someone be curious about your story in a non-judgmental way and in a non-kind of corrective or directive way, and I think that this is where advisors can be really skilled without having to do lots of lots and lots of training because you don't have to do it. You know, therapists, we're making interpretations about why things are the way they are and, you know, and then trying to do interventions to make adjustments. 
so like I would be trying to help Mr. Smith make meaning out of why there's so much anger with the son not being there and how it could have gotten to be that way. Those are more advanced. But if you if he says, yeah, I do want to talk about it just a little bit more and you, you say, okay, well, tell me a little bit more about it. I, I can imagine not being in contact with your son is, is painful or it hurts too. And then you shut up and let him talk. I think it's an interesting dynamic because there is an aspect of being an advisor and and how we get you know the context of our relationship and how we get hired that you know me there's sort of this constant pressure of what am I doing to show value what am I doing to create value and like one of the most natural paths just like I I came up with a strategy like I made the recommendation do this thing and your financial life will be better or your portfolio will be better or your retirement will be better or like whatever the whatever it is but it just it strikes me in the conversation that I, I at least for me reflecting back like I think one of the hardest parts of finding this space particularly in client meetings is I feel like like most of my career was built around like how do I get to a recommendation that adds value that shows some financial planning improvement in the client's life. And so the idea of of like, you know, you know, we were literally in the middle of a financial planning meeting where I was giving them recommendations and answers. And now we're all of a sudden the moment where I'm not supposed to give any answers and recommendations is a really hard mid-meeting pivot to me. It's a massive shift. Absolutely. And and because what the value you're creating is far more intangible. You're now giving them relational value or relational capital. And that's a very different thing and it's much harder to quantify. But you know, have you ever had someone really listen to you where at the end of the conversation you're like, Man, wow, I feel like I'm in a completely different place than when I started that conversation. Yep. They're so I mean, they're so powerful. And and the elements of that experience typically are that someone has been with you, they have looked you in the eye, they have had genuine interest and genuine concern and genuine curiosity through that process, often without even giving any advice or counsel about what you should do. And this is a big pivot for advisors relative to therapists is advisors are hired as external experts. And in the world of therapy, our expertise is more on the process of helping them discover their own internal expertise. To me, like it really highlights the juxtaposition between as advisors, we tend to be hired because we're the experts and the therapy realm is is trying to direct that journey back to the client to navigate their own path. And I, I know some folks that have gone down a, a financial coaching realm and coaching sort of draws on that same that same inspiration that that you know, the, the person you're coaching is the best expert in their own life and, and that the focus is much more about how do you help them find that path for themselves or evoke those those capabilities out of them. But it, it again, I mean, just it, it is an interesting uh, difference. And particularly when we get these moments that crop up in the middle of a, you know, I was wearing my expert hat and the meeting just made a hard left turn and to find the space of realization to say like, oh, I think I need to take that hat off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I feel that on the other side, Michael, when I'm working with my clients and I, I'm, we're hitting into a financial topic where I'm like, I really want to just go into advisor mode and it, help them understand the role of compound interest in protecting their portfolio. I mean, literally, I was in a session rec- in the last week where the couple is in a, a major life transition. Dad has died. They got an inheritance. They've got a relatively young family. They're trying to move houses. 
They're trying to change jobs, right? Lots of moving pieces all going on. And, and I want to whip out the spreadsheet and be like, okay, well, let's run the pro forma here and figure out, you know, what's your burn rate. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, all of those things are really good and they're really valuable. And there's a, a wonderful place for them in the process of change, right? The, the reason why we have planning is to help organize the chaos that's in all of our heads, and so it is trying to find that place. And I think that's part of that question of financial psychology and financial therapy and money coaching, right? Is, well, it's not just always advice, but it's probably not always just processing emotions and relationship dynamics. I mean, that kind of leaves a financial gap as well. And so there's a an opportunity for blending and timing that's really, you know, art more than it is science. So help us understand your like your journey through this. I uh, you know I, like I know you've been on the family therapy on the financial therapy side of things for several years. That's not where you started out in in, in the industry. So t- take us through your journey. Like how did you get started in financial services industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, I think it it probably <sighs> more formally started actually when I was a professional firefighter and it was sitting around the firehouse and listening to the guys talk about their wives and money. And, you know, I was 19, 20 years old and trying to figure out money for myself. And one of those first personal finance books I can remember reading was, uh, how to buy your first house for dummies. Right. And I would, yeah. Right. I mean, I was like, I'm going to figure this out. I had, a, you know, a very small inheritance from my grandparents that I wanted to use to buy my first house. I was living in Houston, Texas. And so houses were cheap. And so, you know, I was just, I was doing the very financially responsible thing and trying to figure it all out. You know, I could hear the stress points for the guys in in the firehouse. And, you know, I I knew within my family, there was some financial friction and and stuck points. And so I was like, man, I'm going to figure this out. I'm just going to read some books. And man, my world started opening up. And I I had a, a financial advisor at least what I understood to be a financial advisor at the time was probably more of a financial sales guy, but that's all right. You know, 19, 20 years old. I had, I didn't know anything about the world of advisory. I mean, I, I didn't really understand what the stock market was. I, I don't know that many 19-year-olds do, but what I did know is he wore suspenders and slacks and drove a nice Lexus, and I did not. And so that probably started me in that awareness about the advisory world. And like, he was super nice and he had all the nice tables and showed me like, well, here's a large cap and a mid cap and a small cap. And, I, you know, and he's explaining it to me and I'm like, uh-huh, okay, okay. I, Michael, I had really no idea what any of that really meant, but it sounded cool. So there's an amalgam of a lot of things going on, probably like most people, right? But I got more and more into personal finance and was realizing I did not want to be a professional firefighter for the next you know, 30 years, 20 years. I met my, my wife who was finishing up dental school and I was trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do with myself? And we were talking and I would hear about the salaries that she was making, would make and her friends. And it just kind of was opening my mind up to, wow, well, I like helping people, financial advisors, you know, I'll just own it. The, the marketing for becoming a financial advisor is you're going to get rich. You're going to yeah. make lots of money. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. That sounds great. You know, you get to help people and make, I mean, naive, I, I yeah. own it. So, you know, I interviewed with a number of uh, financial planning dash life insurance companies, got offers. I was like, oh, well, this is great. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a job and I'll be a financial planner and make great money. This life will be fantastic. Yeah. You know, 
But there was a major error in that is I didn't really understand what I was selling, but I had read enough books to realize I probably wasn't comfortable with what I was offering. And so, you know, it's just, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I had a guy I was working with say, well, you know, Vanguard mutual funds, that you might like it there better. You don't have to sell anything. Well, okay. You know, <laughs> so I wish I could say I had this grand master scheme and plan and foresight, but it's really been a, a stumbling journey to try to figure, figure this out. But I ended up at Vanguard mutual funds and I pretty quickly knew I was a fish out of water. I mean, I'd just spent the last five years being a firefighter, and being in a large corporate setting was completely unfamiliar to me. But, you know, they I, they had a great training program. And I learned a lot more about large cap, mid cap, and small cap stocks and international equity. And I think emerging markets was the super hot stock. And they were teaching us like, well, you know, make sure people diversify their portfolio because it was up 100%. And then it was down 30%. I was like, oh, okay, you know, sure. But there was this internal drive for me to figure out the financial world. And so I earned my MBA, got my CFP, wanted to do the responsible thing with money with my wife and I, and we were figuring it out. And then, you know, but things were starting to happen in my life all at the same time, where I was realizing just knowing how money works wasn't necessarily bringing me more financial peace. And it wasn't necessarily helping me be more effective with family members or understand why I was having a very different financial outcome than other family members. And so more of the, I don't know, we'll call it the the conscientious side of me was showing up and curious about, well, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, it, this isn't that hard. This is what you should do. And if I tell you this is what you should do, then why wouldn't you do it? I'm a nice guy. Enter the field of psychology and counseling which you know broke open a lot more about why just being a nice guy and giving good advice wasn't going to be enough to help me work through some of my own financial anxieties, family members, and clients. So off I went to get my master's in counseling. Interesting. So so I just want to follow, follow that further. So like you, because you get to that moment that I think a lot of us have as we come to the advisor world, like I've learned, I've learned some stuff, got my CFP or whatever it is, like I've I've learned some stuff. I can take a client's information, see the gaps and problems. I give them the recommendations and then they don't do it. <laughs> right. And there's this like, wait, what's going? Like, I'm a nice guy and I'm giving good advice and it's not happening. Yep. So for, so I just, I'm struck. So like, so your conclusion was I need to go for a counseling degree. Yes. I get it. But like, I don't. <laughs> I don't I feel it. like that's where a lot of advisors <laughs> end out. I like I'm gonna assume you were not getting from the halls of Vanguard or like, oh well, you know, everybody else in the pit, like they all went and got their counseling degrees. So like Ed, you just have to do that after your CFP. Like, how did you how did you get there? Yes, no, that's a great question. And and you're right. No, there's plenty of people at Vanguard that were not like, Oh yeah, I'm also going to get my counseling degree. I mean, and I Trust me, when I started telling people that, they were like scratching their head and wondering, what are you doing? And look, the business side of me knew like I could see the numbers and I was like, what? wait, why am I doing this? I mean, I have a very good career path here at Vanguard and there's, you know, good income and heck of a lot better than a mental health professional. And so this is not really rational from that standpoint, but just below the surface, and this is really kind of a big part of my own personal journey, is there was a lot of underlying mental health issues within me that were covered over by my nice guy facade. And so there was a very fortuitous day at Vanguard 
where I was in the break room where all good things happen. And one of my colleagues who I loosely knew said, well, I'm going back to school to be a a therapist. And, oh, okay. And only my own innocence dash, I don't know whatever to call it. I feel like I should know something better to call it, but I'll call it innocence. It's like, oh, okay, let me, I'll look that up. So I went back to my little cubicle and started looking up the school that she was talking about. And, you know, I was kind of wrestling in angsty already and something about that really resonated for me. And with many years down the road and and much great reflection, I realize now that there was a lot of precursors in my life that were probably setting me up to become a therapist ultimately, right? That part of my own family's values and experiences and what they highlighted as some of my strengths were always around being helpful and thinking of others and really meeting people in distress. I mean, I had been a high school lifeguard and swim instructor. So what I now know is, you know, there's a large portion of our society where people are kind of conditioned, nurtured into being people helpers, whether that's innate or socialized, maybe it's some combination. But, you know, the kind of that deeper psychology stuff is in my own family history. My mom went to work for a, a therapist, this, you know, back in the late 70s. And he was a very, very significant and positive influencer in her life. And she actually named me after him. And so, you know, when we talk about the deeper ends of psychology and unconscious influences, eh, that was probably a factor. So so it came from this combination of like, I'm a nice guy, I'm giving good advice. It's not necessarily clicking. Someone mentions masters in counseling in the break room and you start looking this up and like, oh, maybe like, oh, maybe this is a better fit for me. I mean, like, was it like pulling you in that direction? Yes, it definitely was a big better fit for me, right? Like I, I didn't understand all the reasons why it was a better fit for me. And, you know, another factor was for me when I was coming out of high school, my favorite class in high school was psychology. And so when I was looking at colleges before I decided to go be a firefighter, I thought, well, I'll go study psychology. And, you know, for me and and my family background and context, college wasn't a heavy emphasis and I didn't particularly love school. And so the idea of four years of college and then a couple years of graduate school had held no appeal to me and that financially I didn't really know how I would navigate it. So there was a number of financial factors that probably steered me the other way. There was, to be honest, some love factors. I was had a high school sweetheart that I ultimately chose to follow and led me down the path of firefighting initially. So when the counseling and psychology thing popped back up for me many years later, it was really kind of coming back to my first interest for college. And, and now recognizing even many years later, there was other psychological predispositions towards being interested in that field. So how do you make the, the turn at that point? Like you're, what, you're a couple of years in with Vanguard at this point? Yeah, I go home and have some interesting conversations with my wife, who has been incredibly supportive through each of the transitions. And I, and I we have some really honest conversations. I mean, she was aware that I was doing a good job, but not particularly happy. And, you know, in in a very loving wife way, she wanted me to be happy. And I said, well, I think this is going to help me be happier and and more meaningful. And we were at the point where we're ready to start our family. And so I said, well, I'm going to pull the reins on working full time and I'll stay home with our first child. And the, the graduate program was on the weekends. And so, you know, she would work during the week and I would go to school Friday night and all day Saturday and study during the week. Well, well, I took care of our first child. 
Very cool. And so, so how long does it take to go through a master's in counseling program? It took about three years for me. Okay, because you're because you're you can only get there like one, one, one course at a time over the weekends. Yeah, a couple courses a semester, and then you. The big part for this masters for masters in counseling is it. There's the clinical side, so you have to get clinical hours and work with clients and be supervised around that. And so that's a big kind of um, X variable that you don't have full control over. It is an interesting distinction that just one of the one of the things that therapy does I know that that like therapist training requires that that we don't do on the advisor and is is literally like you 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 have to have time where you do this with actual clients with actual patients with some supervision and like make, make sure you're doing it okay and not hurting anybody <laughs> that's uh, right that's right and and like you you know you have to have actual supervised practice with real patients before you get the get the the licensure to do it. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so I think in that way it follows the pattern of a lot of other perf- like doctors have similar requirements, right? They have the residency requirements and nurses have the clinical hours. I mean, heck, even as a firefighter, I didn't just study the textbooks on firefighting. I had to do firefighting activities during the training go to live fires. And so it's, it is an interesting gap and I think the financial planner educational path and, and I hope that it will change at some point. So as you went through the programming, was the idea to come out the other end of this to to move back towards financial therapy in the financial realm? Or or up to that point, was it just like, hey, I'd been a financial advisor for years. Now I'm down this counseling and, and marriage finan- family therapy path. And like, just that's going to be my path. Like I'm kind of, I'm, I'm past that financial advisor stage of life. Yeah, I think it, it was, it was, I want to, I want to be a therapist. I want to work in that capacity and understand what that means. And, and after I finished with the match, the, the graduate degree and started open my private practice, there was still, I mean, I honestly, Michael, I had way more questions than I had answers now. And I did find the financial therapy association pretty quickly. And I was trying to figure out what do I even mean? What does it even mean to help people with their relationship with money from a counseling mental health standpoint? And so, you know, I spent quite a number of years asking questions, reading a lot of books, finally like discovering that genre of books that are financial therapy-ish. Not that there's a lot of books that are titled How to Do Financial Therapy, but you run into books, you know, like Mind Over Money by the Klontzes and Facilitating Financial Health, and you get George Kinder and The Money Maturity and it's like, oh, there's this whole other class of books out there that look at people's relationship with money. And so I really kind of put myself through my own kind of graduate course, if you will, and trying to understand that and figure out how do I blend this all up together into something that's actually helpful for people. So out of curiosity, if they're like if someone wants to at least start exploring this realm, like is there a particular book that you recommend as a good starting point? Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of great books, and I would say, I mean, probably the top two that I would say, and and they're written for kind of the general audience, but they're I think they're really solid and very very helpful. Is Mind Over Money by Brad and Ted Klontz, and then The Art of Money by Barry Tesler. Those are are two books that really kind of I met early on in the the next phase of my growth and understanding of what it means to have a, a relationship with money and to explore more of the psychology behind it. Um, and, and then certainly there's a long list after that, but those would be two that I would start. Okay. 
So for, for folks who are listening, this is episode 296. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 296, uh, in the show notes area, we'll have links out for, for some of those books if you want to go, go chase them down further and we're weren't scribbling it down as we won't as we go here. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess I'm trying to understand like where on the journey. So you were in the financial advisor path, stepped out to the counseling path, did went to school, started out as a marriage and family therapist. At some point though started gravitating back to the financial therapy side. So like when 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 did you get to this, at least as I think of it, this this sort of like midpoint between the two or maybe one foot in both camps of landing in a more financial therapy domain? Well, you know, I think that that's, it's still an evolving process, to be honest. And I think that it's, the way that I thought about it, it uh, I realized early in my practice as a therapist is I was still trying to function more like a financial planner that did some counseling stuff. Okay. And now over you know eight or nine years, it's become no. I am a couples therapist that has a specialty in financial therapy, and so really you know, and this is what was really challenging for me is the clients that were coming to me were not coming for financial therapy; they were coming for all kinds of other issues, and so I had to really start figuring out like what does it mean to actually help someone through an affair? What does it mean to help somebody struggling with addiction and trauma? And in all of that, it was also the questions like, who am I? What's my history? And so there's quite a number of years where I was really looking deeply within myself to understand my own history and my own experiences. And this is where in, in therapy world, we, we talk about using the therapist, the self of the therapist, like who we are as a person. Part of that training development is we have to do a lot of navel gazing, we really got to get deep into understanding ourselves and our story and what what hap- what's happening in us because as we go as you go through that process as hard and challenging as that can be at times it's also part of what now allows me to show up and sit with somebody else as they're kind of mucking around trying to figure out what's going on with themselves and it's it's not as threatening for me to sit with someone that's struggling through some anxiety or major ambivalence about a life decision or the fact that their wife just cheated on them or their husband just cheated on them. I'm not saying it's a load of fun, but it's because I've gotten comfortable with the places of distress in my own life and brought them to a level of resolution. I have a lot more peace now about just being with people in that process of change. So help us understand what the practice looks like today and what what you do now. You had, you had framed it as I'm a I'm a couples therapist who has a specialty in financial therapy. Help us understand like what what is your business today? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the counseling front, my business is I see you know somewhere between 15 and 20 clients a week on an hour by hour basis. And they they come in to me for a number of different reasons, uh, you know. So I still get new couples coming in because someone's had an affair, but I do get more couples coming in saying I'm just so angry and fed up with the way that my partner is spending money and it's going to ruin us. And so we start into a process of starting to help them unpack and explore who they are as people, what's led them to that place, what's going to help them start to discover. How do we get to a longer, more sustainable change around this pattern, right? Look, therapists end up with their own ideas about the world and how people change and grow. And it all makes intuitive sense to us, but it's like, it's a foreign culture if you haven't lived in it. Yeah, so the day-to-day business is, is really helping people work through and understand what's going on for them 
and honestly, Michael, one of my deepest passions now has become around helping people connect how their childhood experiences of trauma are setting the stage for them having trouble with their finances. So take us further down that road. Just what like what does that look like for? Because as you said, you know, the 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 couple that comes in, you know, uh, we're not doing well. I'm fed up with how my partner is spending money. It's going to ruin us and help us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, please know that the, the, any stories that I'm sharing, I'm blending details. So it's, this is not an, one specific client. A, a, uh, appropriately anonymized with healthy overlap. Yeah. Right. Yes. The couple came in and the wife had really problematic shopping and he had been trying to get her to stop. They had been in a lot of conflict. He would get angry. He would yell at her about it. At one point, they went to work with a financial advisor and they said, okay, well, let's look at all your numbers. And okay, well, this is how much she can spend on the shopping. So let's just have her do that. Well, that lasted less than a month. So, you know, I think think that's an interesting example of just where these situations may at least initially hit our radar screen, right? It's It's scenarios like that. They they the you know the client comes in hey like we know we need to get better about our spending we want to work with you to you know, formulate a better budget on where the money's coming in while we figure out where the stuff that we've saved is invested if they've if they've got some savings and you know we create a plan we figure out where like where the dollars are supposed to to go they've all said they they're good with the budget and then a month later the whole thing's falling apart right yeah that's exactly right and so and that's what's so challenging and frustrating for financial advisors, understandably. And it's what's so frustrating and challenging for clients too, because they then start to beat themselves up and say, well, what's wrong with me? Why, If it's so logical and straightforward, why can't I get myself to do it? Yeah, like the financial advisor told me what to do. It seems so straightforward. I like it didn't work. I couldn't get it done. Like, okay, now I've I'm beating myself up. I've got self doubt. Or like they're all now now I'm piling things on myself from the client end because I feel bad that the advisor gave me the advice and I failed to implement it. And that's where it's often not an issue of logically understanding what needs to happen. And if we take just a break to think about a very simple model of the brain and the way the brain is structured, it's called the hand model of the brain. And everyone, as long as you're not driving with two hands on the wheel, we can walk through this pretty quickly. But basically, I want you to wrap your thumb over your palm and then wrap your four fingers over your thumb. And so now you have a fist with your thumb kind of covered over, right? Okay. And if you turn it where the, the knuckle of your thumb is kind of facing your head, you can kind of imagine that's your forehead. Okay. So right behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. And this broad zone and, and the neocortex, which is the, all the outer layer of your fingers, just under your skull, right? Most of that is considered the thinking brain. And this is a, a rough model. It's not a perfect model of how the brain works. So let's, let's just keep that in mind, but good enough. Right? And so that's where we process most of the financial planning information that we're given by advisors. Two plus two equals four. Compound interest, 10% rate of return will get you blah, blah, blah from blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, check. I got it. Like a little fuzzy, but I can make sense out of that. If we open up our four fingers, we're now looking into the middle of the brain and the thumb represents what's called the limbic region of the brain. And in this very simple model, this is generally the emotional processing processing part of the brain. So this is where all of our feelings come from. And our feelings, despite what most people would, some people would like, drive a lot of our thinking and decision-making. 
So some people want to exclude emotions from our thinking so that we're not clouded by them. We're like pretty much the entire field of economics. Yep. Yes, right. And yet the, the those whole, are the things that make you do it, quote, wrong. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'm not saying, okay, well, let's just give life over to our emotions. No, 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 no. But we do need to understand that they play a significant role in helping us judge what we like and don't like, what feels good, what feels familiar, what feels scary, right? And if we get a certain level of emotional arousal, we're going to shut down from being able to do what we know we should do, and we're going to do what makes emotional sense. So this is why people start to try to override their emotions, because I want to do this. I want to save $200 a month, but man, I really like to go to the bar with my friends. Or I, you know, in the shopping case, I, when I go shopping, I feel better. Oh, well, this is also the center of where we experience relationship and the experience of feeling connected with other people and something in the field of psychology called our attachment system or bonding lives, right? So all of us are born to a mother and we have fathers in the mix and we are dependent on them for our caretaking. And all of those memories of our caretaking get stored, or a large portion of them start to get stored in our limbic system. So our relationship template and our emotions are all being processed from that part of the brain. Now, if we pull our thumb back, we're now into open palm, and we start to see down our forearm. And that's the base of our brain and down into our nervous system. That's all mostly instinct, fight, flight, or freeze. That system is designed to work automatically. Well, many of us that have even taken a basic psychology course in college know about Pavlo's dog and conditioning. Well, okay, any of the technical psychologists listening, if they do listen, forgive me for any inaccuracies, but I think we're going to get the point. Money, we can get conditioned with money as a source of fight, flight, or freeze from early, early on in our childhood, right? And that gets stored in our nervous system. Now, we're not consciously thinking about the times that our parents scolded us around wanting to buy something in Target or the times that our parents gave us a car and then said, oh, you don't want to live here anymore? Nope, that's my car. I'm going to take it back, right? I mean, all the things. Oh, all the times that dad yelled at mom for how much money she was spending. All the times that mom said, don't tell dad how much money I spent at the store. Whatever your things were, right? That's all in your more, much more in your limbic system and in your nervous system than it is in your neocortex or prefrontal cortex. Okay, so let's come back to our example now. Budgeting doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet because every time I think about budgeting, I have all these old memories. So my client, this client that we're making up fictitiously but has some core elements, they left the planner. They couldn't, you know, couldn't stay on a budget. Oh crap! What do we do? Okay, well I'm going to go work with a therapist. Well, what does a therapist say that's never really thought about our personal relationship with money and the issue of overspending comes up? Get on a budget. <laughs> well, why can't you just stay on a budget? It's logical. It's psychological. Psychological gives us a bigger view of being human. Back to what I started, I think, the show with is psychologically, we have thoughts, feelings, behaviors, relationship dynamics, a sense of self which is a big deal, right? We know, we all know the word self-esteem. Our self-esteem is predicated a lot on our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So they're all complicated, complexly interrelated. And so anyhow, as we move along in this story for this couple, they ultimately land in my lap. And this couple, when they come in, like many, 
she can barely even talk about the money. It, it just, her hands are shaking. They come up to her face. There's terror. And it takes time to build trust and rapport on the relationship and asking more and more questions. And this is really from the much deeper in the heart of, of counseling and psychology. So please, financial planners, as you're listening, you're not responsible for remembering this stuff. You're not responsible for treating it. But I, I am sharing this so that you know it's there. Is part of the, a major function of that shopping was because she felt alone in her relationship. Now, her husband was, isn't an intentionally mean, nasty person. But his own psycho- psychological makeup leaves him to be more oriented to stay within himself and less available to her. Well, her whole psychological makeup is wired towards being hyper attentive to what other people are doing or not doing or when they're present or not. So when he's not available, she's feeling alone. Well, the solution becomes, I guess I'll just go shopping because, wow, listening to people and seeing the pictures of people having a fun time is not as rich as connecting with my husband. It's better than nothing. And then I'm imagining the like the fun ways this play out plays out in 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 couples. Because frankly, I can I can think back to a client situation too like this. So you know, she's spending more, so he's stressed, so he works more to earn more to try to bring more money home, which means he's even home less and available less because he's more exhausted when he comes home, which makes her feel even more distant, which makes her want to shop more, and they just like compound in diverging directions. That makes this worse. Hey, you've met many of my clients. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and the challenge is as we go into this cyclone further and further, each partner looks more and more villainous and more and more horrific and more and more narcissistic and more and more dependent personality or needy, whatever, you know, clinical de- diagnosis or everyday diagnosis, <laughs> either one, I hear them all. They look anything but like a human that they once loved. And so that really becomes the primary task for me with my clients is taking them on a journey and often it's a long journey back to seeing each other's shared humanity and recognizing that each of them are people with a complex set of feelings, thoughts, and behaviors and relational expectations. Much of it is predicated on their developmental history. And this is where the psychology of attachment theory is so very important. This is right? The study of how human bonding gets taken into our mind and brain and sets the stage for how we expect relationships to be in our adulthood. And so for me as a therapist and a couples therapist in particular, I really like to look at within attachment theory, you know, planners are very aware of personality types. So attachment theory is not a personality type system, but it is a categorization of the way people experience relationships. And it starts to really frame very important understandings about what are our fundamental needs as humans and how do we start to restore that. The interesting thing this this highlights for me when I think about it from the from the financial advisor end. So I, I can sort of break clients into into two groups, really overgeneralizing. Like sure. People for whom I give the advice and they take it and the ones who don't. Yep. And the ones who take it, like they're pretty straightforward to work with. Like most of us, like these are the these are the great clients. Those like, you are know, the A people, clients. People people who take all your advice and otherwise don't call with many questions. Like great clients. Yes. <laughs> love work. Love working with them. Absolutely. Uh, then we get to clients at the other end of the spectrum where we give the advice and they don't take it. And one of the things that had become 
fascinating to me pretty pretty early on because I you know part of my early career journey before I landed on the financial advisor realm was that I I thought I was going to go into medicine and I was a pre-med student and spent spent a couple of years as an EMT. And medicine has an interesting lens for this because in the financial advisor realm, we, when we give advice to a client and they don't take it, we tend to characterize them as a bad client. Yep. I don't like working with them. It's not enjoyable. I gave them the advice. And they didn't take the advice. Like not really fun to beat your head against the wall. Like bad client just move on. I mean, I know advisors who go so far as to like, you basically say things on their website and their materials, like, you know, what makes you a good client is when we give you the advice, you'll take the advice. And if you're not ready to take our advice, please don't engage our services because just don't want to work with them. And medicine has a fundamentally different lens to this. It, it frankly tends to shift a lot of the burden and say like, you know, if you're a doctor and you gave the prescription to the patient and they didn't take the prescription, like that's on you. It means you didn't give the advice like you didn't give the recommendation, the prescription properly. Like you need to deliver your prescription to the patient in a different way so that they will better adhere to to what you prescribe them. And to me, it's an interesting lens to think about it in this context. Though I'm struggling with it as well. On, on the one hand, I do think there's an interesting aspect of that for us as advisors. Like at, at what point is I gave the client the advice and they didn't take it? Perhaps at least maybe a little on us that we didn't deliver the advice in the right way or the way the client needs to hear it or the way the client needs to engage with it in order to get there. But then as you're highlighting, like, well, sometimes that's because there's a whole bunch of other issues <laughs> that we have to just barely scratch the surface on. And like, I'm I'm built to be a financial advisor. I'm not built to do the level of ongoing therapy that you're talking about. So I think I'm, I'm just trying to reconcile, like how, like, how should we be trying to draw that line for where we go with clients, right? Like the group where we give the advice and they take it, I know how to handle that. Great clients. Right. The ones are like, you know, I gave the advice and they didn't take it. You know, at some point there's an implication you're like, you know, well, it's either me or it's them. <laughs> like either I didn't give the advice well or they got some other stuff going on. Like, how am I supposed to figure out which is which, right? Because I'm still, I'm wearing my advisor hat. I'm not going to go the therapy route, but I do need to figure out like, if this is how I'm giving the advice or if this is a therapy issue for them. It's like, how, how am I supposed to get there or reconcile this? I hope that this is not hubris, but it may be. So forgive me if it is. I would just start with the assumption that there probably are therapeutic needs there. Now, let me backpedal that a little bit and just say, not everybody is going to go to therapy. And, you know, I think that sometimes we have this bias that things have to be really bad or really severe to go to see a therapist. And that is just not true. That's actually part of the mental health crisis in our society is we wait way too long because we normalize stress and discomfort in relationships. Well, that's just the way it is. Relationships are just hard. They're just challenging. It's normal to feel a little lethargic. You know, humans are going to human sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, and trust me, I am up there with the best of them. So this is not an easy space, but I would say you have to kind of take stock for yourself, hearing what we're talking about and asking yourself, how far am I comfortable trying to go into this? And, you know, and in some ways we might say, well, those advisors are setting those really strict, harsh, in my language, harsh boundaries are probably doing a lot of people a service because they're not setting up false expectations or rejecting clients because they won't do what they're saying, right? So, and, and looked at it that way. It, on the other side of it is like, 
I think that there's a lot of planners that really genuinely want to help people and get more and more curious about how do I help people at a different level than giving them advice about what to do with their money, but more about advice on how to live life. And that's, I think that's more often where it starts, right? And that's where we see the conversations moving into like values-based conversations, goal-setting conversations, and, and advisors really loving that space. And there's a great, great need for that as well. So, so I guess is if we get to that crossroads, I, I mean, to me at a core, you're kind of giving us a different, a different tool in the toolbox, which is, you know, that, that situation of like, I gave the recommendation, they didn't do it. I probably at least tend to, I mean, I usually take a second try, like, right, maybe I didn't serve this up well, like, let's try this again. Yeah, absolutely. And at some point, there's like a second or a third time. It's like, okay, it's just, like, it's just clear this is, this isn't sticking, like, we're making the recommendation, not doing it, or like, they do it and they immediately fall off the wagon in that, in that, you know, we, we made the budget and then they fell off the spending spending wagon almost immediately that i mean on the one hand like i had already gotten to that point i guess fairly early on of of recognizing that sometimes the best thing we can do in that moment with clients is is just to to stay in on that moment like you know you you've come to my office a couple of times to talk about this and and like we formulated a plan that seemed like we were all together with the plan and and now you come back to my office again and it's still not working or you haven't implemented it or like you you did it but it keeps it keeps running askew. What's going on here that you keep saying you want to do it and then it's not going well or it's not happening at all? Cuz you keep coming back to my office. Like you keep coming to ask and then it's not happening. Like let's just recognize that for a moment and and ask what's going on here. Well, I think that's really even doing clients a huge service is to be able to name that in a non-judgmental way, not in like well, what's wrong with you? What you know, or yeah. what's or going into the self-deprecating, self-loathing? Well, there, there's something wrong with me. Tell me what's what I'm not doing right for you. And it's it can be more of a collaborative, compassionate conversation about you know. I'm curious. We're working together. My perception is that you trust me. I trust that you want to do this. Do you have any sense for what's making it difficult for you to to stick with this? And for clients that have higher amounts of insight, they may really be able to describe that. So what happens when I, I guess I'm wondering, is I, if I open this door, uh, you know, I can also envision, right? Like, I mean, sometimes perhaps they'll be able to name it and like, we can just kind of move on there. Some, sometimes that's all it takes. Other times I'm envisioning either, you know, they're going to basically say like, I have no idea yeah, because there's deeper stuff there to process or they have a lot of ideas of what it is and like a whole bunch of drama <laughs> starts, starts, starts coming out pretty quickly. And so I'm, I guess I'm just trying to vision like from your end as the financial therapist, if, if I have this realization as we go in, okay, there's stuff here you got to go deeper on. Either you got to go deeper because you can't figure out what it is or you got to go deeper because there's a lot of stuff that's coming out that's beyond what we're going to do in an advisor-client context. How, how do I set up that conversation to basically say like, you need to meet my friend Ed? <laughs> like, how do, I, how do I turn this into a referral in, in a positive way for the client? Absolutely. Yeah. And I really appreciate you asking that question. It's one that I talk with advisors a lot and actually will do training with them to help them feel, get comfortable with doing this. But in a very practical sense, what I encourage advisors to start to do is on all new client onboarding, this is for, so easy for new, new clients to do this, right? But it's just to say, you know, hey, you know, this is our firm. This is what we do. We recognize that people often have a number of different professionals in their life. You know, do you have an accountant that you work with? Do you have an attorney you work with? Are there other professionals I need to know about that you work with? 
And then you just say, you know, we often find that the topic of money in families can get complicated sometimes and there can be some difficult emotions. Are there any mental health professionals or, or family counselors that you work with or have worked with? Is that something you'd be open to talking about? And so you're just saying it in a very normal, non-judgmental way. And it's just kind of folded into like, we care about our clients and the whole thing. And you're naming what is true for a lot of clients. So do I, I mean, just prior process really practically is, is that a conversation in new clients? Is that like, is this on my onboarding form? Like there's just, you know, who are your other professionals, CPA, attorney, broker, like we often have a bunch of blanks for those already. So like I, yeah. I add a line for your mental, your mental health professional. Yeah. And then like a little checkbox of, you know, if, if you don't have anyone in this area, are you open to being referred to someone in this area and they can, yeah. they can check it or not? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I think it's really about, and the culture is shifting pretty quickly now. I realize that there's still many people are uncomfortable with, with mental health, but it's, there's no judgment in that, right? There's no intent. We realize that people may take some judgment in that. And that's why we're giving the option to say, yes, I'm open to talking about it. And even on the intake form. So, you know, you have that presumably before you even have the first conversation. Now, you know, are they open to having this conversation or not? You know, if they, they don't check the box and they leave it blank, then you just go on about doing your business as normal. And if they mention it, then you just say, hey, I noticed you put down so-and-so for CPA, so-and-so for this, so-and-so for counselor. You know, would if we get to a point in talking about your finances, is that something that we can talk about? When is the right time to get that help for you? And it's from caring and compassion, no, no judgment. So how do I navigate this when, you know, I'd, I didn't do that one, two, three, five, ten years ago yeah. when I first started working <laughs> right, with this client. Right, right. But, you know, I've, I've, I've come across the issue now that I need to deal with. So, like, how do I broach this conversation here? Yeah, I think the first time that you broach this conversation is not in the moment when you think they need it. So that, that's the big key. So, if, right, if you have existing clients, it might even be in your annual review is just start folding in some language that says, you know, hey, you know, as a firm is growing and we're understanding our clients' needs better, look, we just came out of this big COVID era. We realize a lot of people are working with mental health professionals and that money can be really stressful. Is that something that's relevant for you? Is that something that you know, you're open, or maybe even not relevant, but is that something you're open to talking about? And that way you're using cultural context and normalizing that more and more people are doing it. And as a firm, you're aware of it. And if they want, you know, I think mo most planners are perceptive enough to realize like, yeah, they, they're totally not gonna, they don't wanna do that. You know, if you present it in a way where you're not anxious about it, I think planners will be really surprised at how many people appreciate that they're at least thinking about it. Right, because I think the other side is think about it from the client side. How much would you love to be able to talk with your planner and be able to acknowledge, like, yeah, I have this this issue, or I can tend to feel really depressed when, you know, my mom calls and asks for you know another two hundred dollars. I just don't know what to do with her. Yeah, I'm making something up, right? But I know that there's been many times where I wish that my planner were more comfortable talking about the reality of mental health issues. I, I mean, I have struggled with pretty profound PTSD and depression at times that's really impacted my ability to show up in my family's financial life. But I didn't feel like I could talk about it with, with the planner without them getting completely uncomfortable. 
And so, you know, maybe I, a little bit of this is coming with my own agenda too, but I think, and that's not to say I want my financial advisor to deal with my mental health issues, but just for them to know that that's something that's significant for me. No different than if, you know, I think you're going to place insurance, you're going to start to find out, do they have a cancer history? Do they have diabetes? Do they have, you know, other major health risk factors? I mean, even if you're placing insurance, and a lot of times, right, you got to, you know, mental health becomes a part of that criteria, right? And so then what do I do if I, like, I do find myself in the moment, right? You know, like we, we, we've, we've gone here, you know, what, uh, I, I mean, what were, we, what were we saying earlier? You like, you, you've been coming in to implement this, but it seems like it's been a struggle to follow through what's been difficult for for you to to stick with this and stuff starts coming out and it's like oh okay like yeah this this is more than my scope as a financial advisor how should i try to handle that in the moment if i you know i didn't have a history of talking about mental health with with clients so yeah like that that groundwork wasn't done in the past but i'm here now michael can we try something can we just do a, a very short little role play sure so can you be that distressed client and i'll be try to be the financial advisor Sure, sure. So you know, had my had my budget recommendation, or you know, what what we picked on the budgeting and already, but so you know, can maybe even do something a little bit more directly, I guess, ta- tangible for a lot of us. So you know, I was I was supposed to get the paperwork to roll over the four hundred one k plan, and like, still haven't gotten it. Keep saying I want to work with you, haven't haven't gotten the paperwork. Yeah. Hey, Michael, it's it's good to see you today. You know, we've been working on your four hundred one k and getting that rolled over. How's that been going for you? Uh, yeah, I like keep meaning to get the paperwork racked up, but like things just been really hectic at work lately. So I, I'm I'm sorry I didn't gotten around to uh to getting the 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 forms I have to get from HR. Oh, so things are really hectic for you at work right now. Yeah, just it's it's been really it's been really busy. Like the there's a big project we're all working on, and uh, I, you know I I just I know I'm supposed to get the the paperwork done. I'm so sorry I keep screwing this up. Wow, it sounds like you feel pretty bad about screwing this up. Yeah, I I know we're supposed to get this done, and like I've been meaning to fix it for a long time, but I, I you know, I, it's just been so busy. Michael, I'm wondering, do you have any other ideas about why you might be stopped in getting this taken care of? Well, I guess like it just feels weird to be you know doing the rollover for my old 401k. Like I, you know, I was really attached to the company for a long time, and like. It, we didn't end on really good terms. And so like, it's just a lot to deal with right now. Oh, it sounds like there's some deeper emotional meaning for you about having worked at the this last company and not ending on good terms. And maybe you're a little, it sounds like you're, you're stuck in that. Yeah. I, you know, it just, it got really, really messy at the end. Like there was a bunch of drama with my boss and one of our coworkers and like, I just had to get out of there. Oh, wow. I I can imagine in some ways, you may not think about it this way, Michael, as traumatic, but it sounds like that may have been a little traumatic for you even. Yeah, I I guess it was in retrospect. You know, Michael, I can appreciate that. I I get to work with a lot of clients who have gone through some difficult transitions and sometimes they get stuck a little bit. And in my past experience, they've appreciated even talking with a counselor about kind of their work history and what's going on there and and then sometimes for my clients that work a lot, there's other issues in their life that have maybe led them to working a lot and making it hard to attend to other details that they say are important. Would you be interested or have you ever talked to a counselor in the past? No, I haven't. But yeah, I guess that's kind of true for me. 
Yeah, you know, and there's no judgment from my, my standpoint as a planner. My job is to be here and to help you with your financial life and to make transitions. And, you know, I can help you start to think about how to find a counselor if you want or if you want to do that on your own. I, I respect that. But, you know, it's something I just want to put on the table for you to consider. Well, yeah, I guess I could, I could try. I don't know where to get started, though. I can appreciate that. Uh, we have a couple of counselors here that we we know in the community some people like to even use Psychology Today. It's a website with a bunch of different counselors. And you can look at the different profiles and start to see, you know, who might fit well for you. But I know that there's a lot of counselors that work really great with clients who have stress around work and feel overwhelmed by it and may even have some pain, past painful stuff uh, around work. All right. I can, I can try that. Great. Right. In- interesting. Interesting. So just now we're like reflecting on the the conversation and the and the and the flow of just just bringing that back to sort of na- naming what's going on and acknowledging it and validating it and creating the space. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. I hope that there was no you heard no judgment in my voice. And as I just kind of named and validated it and then went quiet, it allowed you space to elaborate a little bit more. And that's where that kind of spilling out comes. Is like and just I think what we can trust as financial advisors is there's always a more complicated story than the one that's being told. And part of the reason that is, is a lot of times we don't need to tell the whole backstory to get the message across and the details done. But when people are stuck, there is an important backstory that is likely stopping them from moving forward. And that's this what we've been talking about through this whole podcast, right? Is when do we when do we try to open up that backstory a little bit more and try to be helpful with it? And when do we just say, oh, okay, yeah, there's more backstory. Let's find a mental health professional because mental health professionals, that's what that's our bread and butter. That's what we love doing, right? Advisors love putting together portfolio recommendations and integrating with tax efficiency and all that stuff, bread and butter for you at some point. Working with backstories and helping people move forward is, is bread and butter for therapists. I really like that framing of how did you say like the, there's always a more complicated story than the one being told and when people are stuck it's usually the backstory that's keeping them from moving forward. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's just one of those general rules of thumbs that we can have is as humans we 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 only let people into our story as much as we can trust them. And we all have more complicated backstories than what meets the eye, right? I mean People may feel like, oh, well, I know Ed pretty well, man. He shared a lot on this podcast, and and that is true. But there's still so much you don't know about me. And Michael, right? In the context you've been interviewing me, so I've been sharing more of my story. I feel like I know you. I feel like I really like you. But I know he, there's a lot more to Michael than what I've learned here, right? And so I think that we can just trust as advisors and as therapists that there's always a more complicated backstory than what meets the eye and then what's being told. And that doesn't mean that people are trying to be deceitful or overly private. We earn the right to hear people's stories. And, you know, especially for clients that are more reserved in sharing their story. Sure, there's some people that will tell you their whole life story without thinking twice about it, but there's plenty of others that will be more guarded or, or graded in how much they share. So as you've gone down this this path, like what surprised you the most about try, trying to build a business around this? Oh man, I I can tell you probably the hardest part, and and it's in retrospect now under, understanding some of it is marketing financial therapy in the first four or five years was absolutely painful, and there's there was two sides to that coin. One, I was 
painfully insecure and uncertain about what I meant by financial therapy. And the other side of it is the industry, because I, you know, my brilliant business plan is, well, I'm going to come out, I'm going to razzle and dazzle all these financial planners with my education. And they're just going to be so excited to send me clients because they don't want to deal with this stuff, right? That was, I mean, kind of the concept. And well, that just didn't prove to be true in any stretch of the imagination. And I had to beat my head against that wall, like for years. Well, I think the challenge for some of us, like we, we, we so don't want to deal with this stuff that like we don't even want to open those doors sometimes in the client conversation or, or as noted, like if, if, if we do, we're, we're, we're trying to move on from it as quickly as possible as opposed to saying, oh yeah, let's hang out in this space for a while. Yes, absolutely. Right. And I think that that's something that I couldn't appreciate and it took some time and maturity. And I think, you know, fortunately, now many years down the road where I do know what I mean by financial therapy and I can speak to it confidently and from a place of experienced practice, that makes things a lot easier. And concurrently, the field of financial therapy and even financial coaching, which is, I think, more amorphous, has continued to grow. And the language and the, the idea at a cultural level is is becoming more widespread. So that's certainly helping with the business building side of things. And then, you know, I mean, as a business owner, it's just my, my self-concept as a business owner has matured and working with my own therapist and my own business coach and learning about practical things like SEO and also just hiring somebody else to help me with SEO was a game changer, you know? And I think I tried to network my way to client success and that just wasn't taking off. And working with some really great website SEO folks, especially around therapy, and really was where I got a lot of that traction. And so, you know, fortunately now my, my caseload stays full for the most part. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from like 10, 15 years ago when you were starting into the financial advisor world? Oh, man. You know, I, I hope that I would have been able to understand this as a framework, but I think I've become a really big fan of, of growth frameworks, right? And I think most people first think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's like we start out not even knowing what we don't know. And so just, and th- but saying like, you're going to go through that phase and then you're going to go through this phase where you start to realize like that you don't know that much and it's going to feel terrifying and overwhelming and that's okay. There are lots of people that, out there that want to actually help you succeed, and then you know you're going to start to learn and know things and develop your confidence. But that insecurity from phase two is still going to linger around and make it hard for you to feel confident about what you really know and that you have learned some things. But then in the fourth phase is really knowing what you know and being comfortable with the reality that you still there are things that you don't know and that you may never know, and that's okay. Okay. This I this rings a bell. This is the whole like I'm I'm you know, like I'm unconsciously incompetent. Then eventually like I'm consciously competent because I figure out my stuff. Right. Yep. That is that progression. Okay. That's that's the progression, right? And so I don't know how much twenty two year old, twenty five year old me <laughs> could have wrapped my head around all of that because that's one of those things is like as we grow into that wisdom and we can look backward and say, well, here's the path that I traveled. It's really hard to see that on the forward side. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Well, I want to be very conscientious of of your listeners, but I, I do want to own in full transparency. I, I mentioned that I've struggled with major depression. And so there was a period of time after coming out of, of grad school where I really knew like it was in 
in that framework, right, I realized, man, if half of what I just learned is actually true, I've got a lot of stuff to figure out. And so uh, I really went on a quest to try to understand where are, where is my pain in my life? Because I, I had a period of time where I was like, nothing bad happened to me. I had a good family. I don't have any trauma. And there was a period of time where I was deep in, in my own depression and um, working with a therapist and, and trauma-focused. And there was some very, very painful childhood trauma that came up that just rocked the foundation of, of my world and my understanding of myself and my family. And it took a long time to, to put all the pieces back together through that. I'm grateful to say, you know, it's one of those things where you're not grateful for it when you're going through it, but on the backside you are. As cliche as that is, it's, you know, and I write about it in, in my book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, my own story of, of really finding my way to the bottom of, of my own pain. You know, there's that cliche phrase, you got to find your rock bottom before you change. And, you know, I, I didn't hit it through addiction, but I did hit it through searching out for my own trauma and, and I got there. Um, and so, you know, that's not really exciting stuff to hear if you haven't been on that kind of transformational journey. It may even scare a bunch of folks, and I'm sorry if that's what I'm doing, but um, that, that's at least my truth and the truth that seems to be true for, for many other people that go on to really be able to have profound impact in other people's lives. So what advice would you give someone that wants to go, like wants to start going down this financial therapy route in in their own learning or journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm deeply involved with the Financial Therapy Association. I'm on the board there and I would say that it's an incredibly supportive community of of professionals that are both financial planners and therapists and m- many of them have been on their own healing and transformational journey both with money and life in larger context. And, and many of them are kicking the tires on it and trying to figure out what that means for them. And so, you know, I think from a, there's always taking a transformational journey. Nobody else can do it for you, but it certainly helps to have people around you. So what comes next for you? Well, I appreciate you asking that. I, I just mentioned my book. I have a new course that I'm putting out for couples called The Couple's Guide to Financial Intimacy, which really puts on the table for couples major psychological elements that are blocking them from fostering financial intimacy in their life. And then, you know, getting to speak at large planning conferences, going in-house to planning firms and providing training, and whether that's group training or one-on-one coaching, mentoring for financial planners that want to really dig deeper into this material. I've started to do more and more of that work, and it is incredibly rewarding to see financial planners start to connect links between their own relationship with money and their own money history. And, you know, there's nothing more painful than as a financial planner to to not be able to get along with your partner around your finances. As a planner. As a planner, it is, I think there's a special type of pain around that because it's like, wait, but I have all this training and all this knowledge and we still can't get on the same page, right? Like you can't, you can't cry me a copa. I don't really know what to do with money. No, you know what to do with money, but if, you don't, you can't, if you can't execute that, that in your own life, that's a really painful place to be. And so, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with planners within the therapy context, both individually and in their intimate partnership. And one of the most important things for planners to realize if they haven't realized it already is you cannot be your family's financial planner. You just can't see it clearly enough. I mean, you may see some of the number of details, but you're you you're just going to miss so much of your partner's details, views, values. It's too muddy. It's why I can't do couples therapy with my wife and I, despite me trying for probably too long, <laughs> and not formally, of course. 
Oh, of course, of course. But you know, I would ask way too many family of origin questions. Um, and yeah. So, you know, my encouragement, if you're a financial planner and you're struggling to do planning in your own family, please get your own financial planner. And if that doesn't help, please come see a financial therapist. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're, you know, you're on this fasting path to success in your own business and in building this direction. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, you know, so I'm I'm 41 at this point in my life and I think I think about success a lot more now and what I mean maybe I've been thinking about success the whole time but the way I think about it continues to evolve and so I think that's successful in in its own roundabout way is seeing the evolution of how I think about success so I shared earlier in this podcast like I was so focused on becoming wealthy and I was you know so enamored with how much money I could make as a financial planner that I I really missed some of the deeper meaning and value and so, you know, my success now, I put it in two buckets. One is more of the professional side, and it's incredibly gratifying to sit with a client who's been working on a complex family dynamic, and they get the courage to have the co- difficult conversation with a family member, and you, and they just say, I feel free. I, I, I'm not burdened by this anymore. I know that I can survive, and I can do what I need to do, and you give them a huge high five. And man, that that lights me up big time. So professionally, when I when I see people get through their trauma, through their depression, through their anxiety, their relationship conflicts, man, that that is huge success in my book. More on the personal side, if it's just Ed, if I'm riding my mountain bike, man, that's that's huge success. I I love mountain biking. But I have three boys and I have a wife, and so you know they're really the reason why I'm doing all of this. And, you know, success is being able to get home and read a book and put the kids to bed. It's getting them to bed without a major meltdown or brawl. You know, I know you have, you have three young boys. So like that, that really is a thing to get all, all of them down without a brawl. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, let's be really practical, Michael. If my wife and I get to sit on the couch and have a glass of wine and talk for more than five or 10 minutes before one of us falls asleep, that's a huge win. <laughs> Amen. Amen. As uh parent with three young children as well, I definitely can appreciate that. So yeah, you know, that's the practical, the really the practical stuff. I think, you know, more personally, it is watching my family grow and mature and being able to, to play my role of leadership alongside my wife's role of leadership and helping to form the young, the young kids that we're raising because they're the next generation, right? And that's, that's the nice part of being at this point in life is you start to realize like, this isn't fully about me. It doesn't mean that I don't get to make some things about me, but there's a lot that's really just not about me. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, it's been a great gift to to spend time with you, Michael, and I appreciate your thought leadership and just genuineness. You know, that's that's a huge gift to the field of financial advisors. Well, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.